So I'm going to give us a quick reminder before we get going this morning of what we've seen so far in Acts, what, uh, what we've come through so far. We've, we've reached the start of chapter 8. So let's just quickly see what we've seen so far. We, we saw in chapter 1, actually Jesus is still there. He's, he's risen. He's, just, uh, he's, he's with his disciples. He's appearing to them. Uh, and he ascends to heaven in chapter 1 of Acts, but he leaves them with a promise, doesn't he? A promise that there's someone better than him. Someone more than him coming. He actually says to them, look, you'll be glad when I've gone because who's coming is better. And that, that someone is the Holy Spirit. That's Jesus' promise in chapter 1. In chapter 2, remember we had Fillmore here uh, and he had that illustration of a, a, a man trying to pull a lorry but then his granny getting in the lorry and driving it because there's so much power there. Um, and, and it was Pentecost. It was that, that, that moment where the Holy Spirit came in power on the disciples and suddenly there's an explosion of, of amazing things happening. And we see this dynamic empowering of the disciples of the early church. And we saw at the end of chapter 2 just the beauty of the early church. The, that everyone was together, worshipping together, loving each other. There was no one who had any need in the church. As they were, they, they were sort of fired up and sent out by the Spirit. In Acts 3 and 4 we start to see the, the real effects of that. Of the disciples doing amazing things in the power of the Spirit. We saw Peter and John remember, going into the temple healing the, the, the lame beggar who'd been there all his life. Uh, and then actually the first bit of persecution. We saw the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish authorities, reacting um, not too happy with, with Peter and John because of what was going on. Everyone was getting so excited and, and seeing amazing things happen. And it was detracting from, from the, the ordinary worship in the temple. So they were jailed, they were questioned, they were released, and they went again. Acts 5, we had a bit of a difficult chapter. We had Ananias and Sapphira, remember that moment where, where actually there's the first bit of actual sort of sin and corruption entering the church. There's Ananias and Sapphira sort of go a bit corrupt and dishonest and, and God acts really decisively. He, he strikes them down. There's a real sobering moment, but a, a vision of just how seriously God will fight for his church. And I mean, we, we saw in Acts 6, uh, another moment of difficulty actually, where there was some, a group of uh, Greek Greek-speaking widows in the church who were struggling uh, financially, in poverty, and the church had kind of missed, missed out on looking after them, and so they do something about it. They raise up a team of people led by Stephen, people who are full of the Spirit, to look after these people. So it's kind of a setting up of a new social action ministry to make sure that these widows are looked after and cared for. And then last, last time we met, uh, before, before Dave was here last week, we looked at Stephen, didn't we? We had uh, Acts chapter 7. Stephen, the dramatic story of him being questioned, put on trial by the Sanhedrin, of him giving this amazing, long and powerful, dynamic speech to the, to, the, to the people who put him on trial, telling them about the Holy Spirit, telling them about the fact that God doesn't just live in a temple anymore, he lives in us. Uh, and, and we saw the, the tragic end, what, what seemed like a tragic end, um, of Stephen being dragged out there and stoned on the street. <coughs> what we've had so far in Acts is a pattern of power, of growth, and then of opposition. Actually, everything that's happened so far, there's been a series of remarkable events. We've seen power come, come upon this new group of believers, this, this small but, but excited bunch of people who've, who've spent time with Jesus and now have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, who are going around doing remarkable things. And we're seeing an outbreak of something. We're seeing, actually seeing mass conversion. So at Pentecost, we saw 3,000 people added to the church. Chapter 2, verse 41. Later in that same chapter, it said, God added to their number daily. 
By the time Peter and John are on trial in chapter 4, we find out that there's now 5,000 of them. Huge growth going on. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira. We see that moment where we think, well, if anything's going to put a stop on this growth, it's that. That's going to freak people out. But it says no. It says yet more were added. Yet more were added when they see this act of, of kind of <clears throat> judgment by God, but, but of revealing just his heart for the church. And we see in chapter 5 as well, it's, in chapter 6, it says the numbers continue to rise all the time, empowered by the Spirit. This church, this group of Christians is growing. Is growing. And it's very, very clear that it is God who's doing this. He's the power behind it all. The disciples know this. They know it's, it's not them. It's God. He's making it happen. He's the one who's, impa- who's making this all take place. You know, Peter and John even said, you know, when, when, when the Sanhedrin interviewed them, questioned them in chapter 4, they're saying, you've got to stop this. And they're saying, we couldn't stop it if we wanted to. It's God. It's God, it's God that's doing this. And in chapter 5, and we see uh, one of the members of Sanhedrin, a guy called Gamaliel, he says this. And he says this to the Sanhedrin. He says, look, I advise you in this present case, just leave these men alone. Let them go. Because if their purpose or activity is of human origin, if they're just making this all up, it'll just die a death. We don't have to worry about it. If you think that, they're, that what they're doing is false, then just forget it. It'll, it'll go. It'll, it'll fall apart. But if it is from God, you won't be able to stop them. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God and that is never a position you want to be in. And so that's the position we come to now. We've had St- we're going we're to just reflect back into the very last few verses of Stephen, chapter 7, just to remind ourselves what happened. And we're going to just read a very short few verses in chapter 8. And we're going we're gonna to talk about persecution this morning. We want to turn to uh, chapter 7, verse 54. We're just going to read what's on the screen today. It says this, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, that is the message that Stephen's just preached to them, if you remember that big long speech, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, that's been the key all the way through, hasn't it? Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God and at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed at him they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him and meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul and while they were stoning him Stephen prayed Lord Jesus receive my spirit and then he fell on his knees and he cried out Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And we move into chapter 8. Saul, it says, approved of their killing of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. All the way through the series, we've been looking at what happens next. And what happens next after Stephen's murder is that the Jews snap. They've had enough. They cannot bear to see any more of this. 
They can't bear to see this, this sect, this movement, this, this band of agitators grow anymore because they're having too much influence. They're seeing people who've come to temple all their lives, who've been key to the temple kind of industry we talked about the other week, defect and, and join this group of Christ followers. And they're saying, enough, enough. This, is, this has got to stop. Our, our livelihoods are at stake here. This doesn't work for us. They're a threat to temple worship. They're a threat to the Jewish way of life. And they're led by Saul. They're led by Saul. In fact, we, we learn later that Saul, Saul tells us a bit about his backstory. This Gamaliel fellow we just quoted, Saul was a student of Gamaliel. He studied at Gamaliel's feet. He would have done well to listen to Gamaliel. And here, actually, you know, this, if this is God's Saul, you can't do anything about it. But he didn't. And he, he started this what well, it says, a great persecution. Saul was literally knocking on doors, dragging people out of their homes, throwing them into jail, going from house to house. It's horrendous. And we see a scattering of believers. Persecution, it's a, a, long, a long, complicated word, but what it basically is defined as is violence <clears throat> or discrimination against religious minorities. Actions which are intended to deprive minorities of political rights, and to force them to assimilate or to leave or to live as second-class citizens. I wonder if we feel this at the moment. Do we feel that we're on the end of persecution here in the UK? Probably not in the terms of, of violence. Not many of us, very few of us, will probably ever experience violence. I hope none of us have had that so far. But I do sometimes think there's a sneaky undercurrent of discrimination rising all the time. I think back to Tim Farron when he's leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. Couldn't get through a press conference without being quizzed and interrogated on what he believed about this, that or the other to do with the Christian faith. No one cared about whether he was a good politician or not and whether he, he had good policies. It was all about what do you believe about this? Do you believe the Bible when it says that? Because if you do, we ain't going to follow you and you can't, you can't, you can't speak. <laughs> it's ironic. It's supposed to be a Liberal Party and yet this guy wasn't allowed to have his own views. There's a sneaking undercurrent of pressure of you, you can't think that way anymore. But when it comes to a great persecution, when it comes to a persecution like we see here <coughs> in Jerusalem, we're probably not experiencing that. There isn't an obvious and concerted effort to forcibly end Christianity. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of worship in this country. We're allowed to meet here this morning. We don't need to do it undercover. We don't need to do it in secret. We can be here and worship God freely and that's okay. But it wasn't like that here in, in first century Jerusalem. Not now. The feeling was, if we can round these guys up, if we can jail them, if we can intimidate them, if we can beat them, flog them, execute them, if we can get rid of this thing, we can, we can shut this church down. We need to get this message out that this religion will not be tolerated. It has no place here and it's got to end. And the idea was that anyone who escaped would be so petrified by what they've seen. So petrified by seeing their friend Stephen dragged out of a, out of a Sanhedrin and, and stoned. So, so petrified of seeing mothers, fathers dragged away from children that they would flee and they would just forget about this Christian lark. Let's, it's too dangerous. Let's, let's not bother with it. They couldn't have been more wrong. I'm going to move us into the, uh, the 20th century. Does anyone know who this man is? This is a man called Watchman Nee. And Watchman Nee was a a Chinese church leader. Uh, he was born in 1903, died in 1972. 
And Watchman Nee helped to initiate local churches in China. In fact, he was in part responsible for over 600 churches being planted in China. And he wrote many books, he helped spread the gospel, he raised up many, many more church leaders. And he spent the last 20 years of his life in prison for what he believed. Anyway, I want to use an illustration this morning that Watchman Nee used, which I think is so helpful to understand persecution. He was due to preach one Sunday in a, in a church and he'd been made aware, this was during a period of intense persecution and he'd been made aware, look, there are communist spies in the congregation today. And if you open your mouth, if you say a word about Jesus this morning, you will be arrested. You will be thrown into prison. It will be the end of you. And so he walked up to the, the stage and instead of preaching a sermon, he produced a, a silent but stunning illustration. He took in his hand a, a glass of water and he looked at it with a, an intense stare and then he hurled it to the ground where it shattered into pieces. And then for the next five minutes, he angrily trod and stamped all over the glass until it got smaller and smaller and more and more spread and dispersed across the stage. He wanted to leave it absolutely smashed. And then suddenly he stopped and he put his hands to his head with a look of horror on his face. And he started to uh, hurriedly try and gather and scoop all the pieces of glass back together again. And he started trying to piece this glass back into a glass, take all these shattered fragments and shards and build a glass again and put it back to the way it was. And of course he realised he, he couldn't. He smashed it so thoroughly it couldn't be put together again until he shrugged his shoulders, threw the glass in the air and walked off the stage. Without saying a single word, Watchman Nee had shown something so powerful. He was acting in this illustration as, as the communist state. And the glass was, of course, the church. And by smashing and trampling the church, he was, in, he was showing this is what the communists are trying to do. They're trying to shatter this church. They're trying to eradicate it. They're trying to stamp it out. But then he had this realisation that by the time he, he tried to piece the glass back together again, that actually made a huge mistake. And trying to break the church apart, and trying to smash it into pieces, all he'd done was spread it further. All he'd done was make it have even more influence. When it was a whole glass, it was contained. He could almost control it. He could put it where he wanted to. He could, he could kind of keep it under wraps. Now he'd smashed it. It had gone all over the place. He couldn't control it anymore. And that's actually what happens in persecution. This parable, this illustration that Watchman Nee used proved to be prophetic when the missionaries were forced out of China in 1949 when, <clears throat> when the communists thought they'd won. There were fewer than one million Christians in China. Today, there are approximately 54 million Christians in China. Instead of destroying the church, they dispersed it. And China is a modern example of exactly what we see here in Acts 8. In trying to stamp out the early church, in trying to force them out of Jerusalem, all the Sanhedrin succeeded in doing was scattering Christians even further. Remember, Jesus had promised, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then you'll go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It was persecution which instigated this. The church didn't grow in spite of persecution. It actually grew directly because of persecution. Somehow, God seems to use persecution to serve his mission. 
It's hard to get our heads around, isn't it? That this pain, this sorrow that persecution creates, this difficulty, and we're going to hear more about it in a minute, some, some real modern day stories of it, but somehow it, God brings something from it. God does something with it to glorify and grow his precious church. These stories of persecution in, in China, in the modern day, in Jerusalem, uh, in the early church, and in between, there have been hundreds of stories in various different nations, various different contexts through the centuries, where persecuting authorities have assumed that Christianity is made up of people who are weak-willed, ambivalent, and dispassionate. People who will just pick up or put down their faith on command. Certainly in Jerusalem, they viewed this as just a passing fad. This will just go if we just punish it a bit. That is a huge misunderstanding of what it means to be a passionate, spirit-filled follower of Jesus. As Peter and John said, even if they wanted to stop what they were doing, they could not. Because when our lives are changed by Jesus, things happen in us that should mean that persecution is ineffective. One thing that happens is that death loses its sting. Being a Christian means that we don't need to fear death anymore. Because we know that this life is just the beginning. We know that this life is just a breath. We, we looked at it in Ecclesiastes, didn't we? It's just, a, it's just a breath. It's here and then it's gone on earth. But it's leading to eternity. It's leading to everlasting time with God. What fear does death hold for us? Yeah, we'll be sad to leave some of our earthy things behind. We're supposed to enjoy life. We don't hold on to it so loosely that we just, we're reckless, but we know there's something better coming. We know that Jesus has done something that means we no longer fear death anymore. He took the sting of death when he died on the cross for us. He destroyed it. There's no fear anymore. And so when people try to threaten Christians with death, if you don't stop believing this, you'll die. Our response is, okay, <laughs> I'll go and be with Jesus. I'll go and be with Jesus. We heard, um, uh, it wasn't a story of persecution, but a story of pain and uh, a, a lady, who's an elder's wife in, in New Grounds, who's in one of the French churches, she, she's got terminal cancer, she's in a hospice now, and we watched a, a short video message from her at a conference last week, and her message was just, you know, she's so frail, she looks so ill, so poorly, she's fought valiantly against cancer, but her message was, Do you know what guys, I'm still praying for healing, but I'm also excited that I'm going to get to be with Jesus if he doesn't heal me. It's win-win. I either get better and I have longer on earth with my family, or I get to be with Jesus really soon. I'm okay with it. Death has no fear for the Christian. If we truly know Jesus, if we've truly allowed him to take over our lives, we don't need to fear threats and violence and death because we know that they're just a doorway into being with Jesus even sooner. Another thing of why persecution doesn't work is because actually as Christians we have a gratitude attitude. You know, there are a few things in our lives that we might truly die for, but I think Jesus is up there. It's got to be because he died for us. We're prepared to defend the name of Jesus. We're prepared to stand up for our Lord and Saviour because of what he did for us. Jesus said, great and love has no man Great, great love is no one than to lay their life down for us. He laid his life down for us and because of that, man, I'd do anything for him. I want to be obedient to him. 
I want to defend his name. I want to shout his name. I want to let everyone know about him. And so when someone says in, in persecution, you need to recant Jesus or you die, I say, no way I'm going to recant Jesus. There's no way I'm going to turn my back on him because of what he did for me and because I stand on the promises that he's made for me. A truly captivated heart understands the value of what Jesus has done for them. And so persecution should hold no power. We're loyal to the one who saved us. We're loyal and faithful to the one who was faithful to us. And another reason is that we're motivated by mission and we're fueled by the Spirit with that mission. You know, our lives are not empty. Actually, we, we, we're part of something bigger. We know that we're not just saved so we can have a nice few years on earth. We're saved into a mission. We're saved into a calling. We're saved to take the gospel to more and more people. And so we're not just going to give that up, are we? When someone says, you need to stop this. Actually, who's our commander? It's Jesus. It's not the communists or whoever, whoever ruling regime we're under. Our commander is Jesus and he's commanded us. Go to the nations. Go and be my witnesses. Go and tell the good news. We have purpose. We have motivation. Not merely warm feelings. As we sang today, he set a fire in our soul that we can't contain and can't control. Persecution doesn't outweigh that. It's not, go to the nations, go and be my witnesses, unless you feel a bit like you're being persecuted, in which case, just keep quiet. It's not, it's go, do it, whatever the cost. That's why persecution doesn't work, because persecution meets Christians who are fired up in this way. But what I don't want to do this morning is paint a picture of persecution like it's a piece of cake. We're not to celebrate it, we're not to love it, we're not to enjoy it. It's, it's not an easy thing to enjoy. And I, I want to ask, if you don't know, um, is an ambassador for Open Doors who work with the persecuted, uh, with people who are being persecuted across the world. And she's going to tell us some, some things about modern day persecution, about things that are going on right now, and how Christians are experiencing that, and give us an insight about what it might be like. I just want to um, talk about the options that people have when persecution comes and give you some illustrations about it. And all these options you can see in the, um, in the passages in Acts and as we go on in Acts. So when persecution comes, we have three options. First is to flee. The second is to stay. Or sometime is to seek temporary refuge from persecution. And these three stories show that there is no easy option. The only option mm-hmm. is to walk in obedience to God. And this doesn't just hold true for persecution, this holds true for the difficulties that we all face. In 2013, um, persecution hit the Central African Republic. Muslim Seleka rebels from Chad were joined by local Muslims and they just stormed throughout the country. As they swept south, they destroyed Christian villages, they killed pastors and Christian women and raped Christian women. Pastor Boy and his family fled in the middle of the night as rebels approached their village. He escaped with his life and with some of his children. When we met him, he didn't know where all of his 11 children were. He can't hold 11 hands in the middle of the night as you flee through the jungle. And as many other refugees, he ended up as far south as he could go in the capital, Bangu, in this refugee camp. The Bangu River separates Ka from the Congo, and many died crossing it to flee. They set up home in the old airport, a vast area of open land. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a refugee camp. I wouldn't recommend it. It's bedlam. The noise, the clamouring for help, the poverty, all hit you and threaten to overwhelm you. And then we entered an oasis of calm. This is Pastor Boy's church. And all the chaos, although the chaos was all around, and this church is literally some sticks and a bit of tarpaulin, as you walked in there, the peace of God hit you. Mm. Absolutely hit you. Because when Pastor Boy left, he didn't leave God behind him. Mm. He holds daily Bible studies in the church every day by Friday when he has a prayer meeting at the same times as the Muslims are holding their prayer meetings and a service on Sunday with 150 to 250 people attending. And through his ministry, in the midst of that absolute and utter devastation and chaos, people are coming to know God. And many are coming back to him. You know, when persecution hit, many had the natural reaction that God was angry with them and God had rejected them. And they burnt their Bibles. They couldn't see that this was of God. But now they kept asking us, have you brought Bibles with us? Have you brought Bibles with us? They know that persecution actually is from God. One of our number gave a word of encouragement from God to this humble servant. And he got on his knees in prayer. And he's in the midst of that group of men praying for him. We then went on to meet his wife, meet his wife and one of his children. You might not recognize that that is not one of his children. As I was praying for her, I could hear a commotion going on in the background. And the group came to me and our guys and said, leave as quickly as possible. Don't run and don't look as if you're fleeing, but leave. You probably can't see it there, but the man in this photo is a member of the Anti-Balaka. It was a gang of militias who came to fight the rebel group. And he didn't like us to be there. And he'd just been on his mobile calling members of the, the group to come. And who knows what they were going to do. Unaware of what was happening, I took this picture. And when I saw his face, I was heartbroken. What could have happened to this man to have him such hate in his heart for us? You know, we're called to pray for those who persecute us. This man, this group had kidnapped aid workers in that camp two, weeks, two months before we were there. We don't know what it was going to do. But my heart bleeds for him because something had happened to make him hate you know, we got out, praise God, and thanks to the prayers of his people. His family is still there. Three churches had been built, driven out by the anti Balaka, but he was intending to stay because that was his church, that was his mission, that was his people. I want to talk about another um, pastor I met in um, Central Africa, Gumrupoba, Oblik. This was Pastor Urban. Urban sorry. We travelled north from Bango to a small village called Bodo where we met him. And this is the village. The Christian part of the village had been totally destroyed and burnt out by the Slaka. And in retaliation, the anti-Balaka destroyed the Muslim part, where there had been tit-for-tat actions, until open doors brought reconciliation, which is a story for another time. Serbe, who's got up in his gear here, was a member of the anti-Balaka, and he'd gone to Pastor Urban's house to loot it. When he got there, the actions of the pastor confused him. Because Pastor Urban asked him what he wanted. 
showed him where it was, and he allowed him to take it. So he took what he wanted and sold it to feed his family. When the money had run out, he went back. Because he thought, it's an easy target. Go back there. And the same happened. And then he went back a third time and he said, why? And Pastor told him, that the girlman told him the gospel and he was saved. And he also returned the appliances he'd recently sold them. He got him in his gear to show that this was actually how, and he had a huge machete around him, and this is how he looked when he um, was looting and stealing. And I also love this picture because you can see his little boy with his arm around his legs. His boy was terrified of him when he was in the Antibilaka. So this hasn't just saved him. This has saved his whole family. This is Pastor Urban's house now. He's lost everything, but he stayed for the sake of the gospel. And he's now part of the council with the Muslims that has brought reconciliation through the work of open doors to that village. Staying costs. Going costs. And sometimes we're called back. This is a sister, um, we'll call her Sarah, who I met in Central Asia. She was converted and she told her parents she'd converted and they gave her one week to find a husband or to get married to somebody from the mosque, their choice of husband. To be a citizen of every, any country in Central Asia is to be a Muslim. It's exactly what Chris was saying. You know, it threatens, to be a Christian, threatens the whole identity and the whole um, country. And they thought they'd just marry her off at the end of the week because there was no other Christians in the village because they believed the lie that there was no Christians in the land. And she spoke to her pastor who introduced her to the man who was to be her husband, and she didn't like him at first. But then she um, met him in the street, and she thought, actually, he's got something about him. Her family didn't accept her choice, and they, they locked her up, but she managed to escape because they were going to marry her to the man from the mosque to make her be a Muslim again. They eloped to the north of the country, they got married, and they went to Bible college outside of the country because there's no Bible colleges in the country. And she's gone back. She's gone back to her home village to minister. Her family's disowned her. Her father only phones her to offer a vast amount of money to leave her faith and her husband and to come back from Islam. You know, she lives in absolute poverty. We've set her up in a livelihood project. Her father was rich and wealthy. She truly has left everything behind for the gospel. Every day she walks out of her house, people ignore her. Her friends and family ignore her. Her family walk past her. This hurts her, but it also hurts her four children who have lost the whole of everything. You know, persecution isn't always the smash. Sometimes it's the daily horrible life that the world puts on us. And yet she's faithful. She's faithful. You know, the pain that this young woman felt at her rejection is really hard to convey. But I've spoken to Muslim widows, widows, sorry, Christian widows who've lost their husbands, and her pain was just as deep at this rejection she had. And, you know, and she's a pastor's wife. Who do you talk to as a pastor's wife? <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to have friends when there's no other church network. But she and her husband run a church of 30 converts from their town. There would be no place for these people to worship without them and without her paying the daily cost of going back. 
This is just being built on the edge of the town. I can't convey how big it is. That is a third of it. That is a huge madrasa to train Muslims, extremists. This is where she lives. This is where she stays. And this is where she was chosen to stay because that is where God has called her to be for the sake of the gospel. You know, I hope you, sorry, just want to, I hope you've saw knew that there's no easy response to persecution. And the same is true for our lives when trouble hits. But if we cleave to God, you know, if we cleave to God, then he will bless us. Because that is his promise. Even in the places where faith costs the most. It's quite easy for us to think of these guys as, as uh, I've heard it described as the persecuted church. That's the persecuted church. We're, we're the not persecuted church. That's the persecuted church. I was at a conference with Kathy last year and I was told off for that. Actually, we're one church. We're one church. And that is a part of the church that's being horribly persecuted. We're in a part of the church which isn't at the moment. But there are brothers and sisters. There are brothers and sisters in Christ and we're to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And actually, we need to understand that if we're believers, that actually persecution is to be expected and probably what they are experiencing is more normal and what we're experiencing is not normal um, I just picked a few uh, verses out from scripture the show is actually we should be planning to be persecuted we should expect it 2 Timothy verse three, uh, chapter 3 verse 12 says this in fact everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Mark 10, 29-30 says, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. They'll receive homes, brothers, sisters, mothers and children fields along with persecutions in the age to come and eternal life. Matthew 5.44 I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There will be those who persecute you. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. 1 Peter uh, 4 verses 12 to 14 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. John 3, 1 John 3:13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And John 15, 20, the words of Jesus himself, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the more we read scripture, the more we realise that suffering for what we believe is an expected part of our faith. And it's literally promised to us. It's not the sort of verses we tend to put on our Alpha flyers, if I'm being honest. Come to Alpha! Welcome to persecution. It's not what we tend to advertise about Christianity, but it's right there. It's promised. And to be honest, here in the West, we, we don't tend to experience it. And we had Academy this weekend, and 
Phil Moore was speaking and, and one of the things he touched on was persecution and he touched on that uh, 2 Timothy verse there which says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. And he said this, look, you know, if we're not being persecuted then it means one of three things. It either means Paul was wrong and that you can live a godly life and not be persecuted or it means you're not living a godly life <laughs> or it means maybe you are living a godly life but maybe no one's seen it. Maybe we're not engaging enough in the world. Maybe our light is under a bushel. Maybe we're living for God. We have a genuine relationship with him. But maybe we're just not showing it to people. Maybe we need to do a bit more. Maybe in order to actually jolt people into persecution, they need to know what we believe. They need to know that we're, we're contending for this gospel. It's just a little prod there. I don't want to encourage us to be persecuted. But at the same time, I don't want us to slip into such a comfortable, easy life that the gospel doesn't cause some offence in people. The gospel has to cause offence in order for it to be effective. People need to hear that there is a God who will judge them, that there is a, a choice between heaven and hell. People need to know that. If they don't know that, they won't persecute us for it because they won't bother them. It's a challenge to us. You know, we live in a fallen world and that means we're automatically, as people who've been rescued and saved, we're different from what's around us. Humanity's default setting is estrangement from God. And so by just having a relationship with him, we're different. And if there's one thing that runs through all of humanity is people don't tend to like people who are different from them. It's a sad fact of, of the human race. We, we, we fear difference. We judge difference. Our message is countercultural. We tell people that as humans, we're not good in, our, in and of ourselves. We tell people that we can't save ourselves, that we can't do anything we want, and that we do need a saviour. We tell people that we can't earn our own salvation. And that's not a popular message, is it? In an, in an era where it's all about empowerment. You can do anything. You can achieve what you want. You can get what you want in life. You go and do it. It's all yours. We're saying, no, you can't, but he can. And for many, that's a message, if they hear it, that will be rejected. And that will be unpopular for sharing, but we have to share it. So therefore, if we're truly living a godly life, if we're truly living as Christians, we should expect persecution and rejection and hurt. Whether that's mild, whether that's an argument in the street, or someone telling you that you shouldn't believe that, or whatever, or whether it is something more dramatic like we've seen this morning. And you know what? In a period when we're not experiencing that, in a period where actually we're free to worship as we are here today, then actually the Bible also says that we shouldn't forget those who aren't free. So Hebrews 13.3 says this, Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Guys, when any part of the body, the global body, the global church is suffering... We suffer with them. We stand with them. And I want to finish this morning with some prayer. I want us to pray for those parts of the church that are experiencing serious persecution right now. We believe that God will do good things through that. We believe that God is still on his throne. Jesus is still on his throne. The persecuted church is not something to be fearful of. God's still going to do amazing things through it. But we want to stand with our brothers and sisters at this time.